What's splashing? Welcome to season five, episode seven of Siren Sundays with me, your host, Lashanti the Siren. This show is focused on speaking with researchers, scientists, and practitioners of environmental science and all things conservation. You are now tuning into our conservation conversation, and today's guest is none other than Stacy Moultrie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. Awesome. And as I was just telling Stacey, I am super excited for this episode. And I know I say that all the time, but this one is actually super special to me because Stacey's a legend. I've been hearing about her since I got out of undergrad. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, you want to do conservation planning? Because my title was actually conservation planner. It's like, you need to meet Stacey. She's the best at this. So I feel like I'm more excited than you guys for this, but join the ride. <laughs> <laughs> Stacey, if you can give just a quick introduction um, of who you are, what you do, and where you work for our viewers and listeners. Okay, so my name is Stacy Mutri. I'm an environmental planner, and I work for a SEV consulting group, which is an environmental consultancy firm. But I also do grant writing, um, and that's under another company, uh, HD Wells Professional Planning Services. Awesome. And so can you give me, or and the viewers, I'm talking like it's me. I have to get remember that other people are watching this too. It's not all about me. But can you give us just a brief intro of almost like your educational and experiential past on what started you on this track and, and what are the things that you did along the way? Yeah, so I actually, I'm a, a St. Augustine's College graduate. Yay, big grad machine. But I did, <laughs> I did A-levels at Queens College. And then I, I did A-levels because I wanted to go to University of West Indies. So I actually went to Mona campus um, in natural sciences. And I don't know how many of your viewers are familiar with UE, but you don't pick your major until your final year. You, hmm. kinda, if you do natural sciences, you kind of mix the sciences. And then you have to pick a specialty in your final year. Um, and I, I, was do, I was a zoology major, and I wasn't quite sure. And I was like, OK, what does the Bahamas have? Lots of water. So I'll do marine sciences and fisheries. <laughs> and that's how I picked my major. Um, and I loved it. Uh, when I came home, I worked um, at Coral World uh, for a while. And then I went to Dalhousie University because they have a really good um, master's in marine management. And that's when I got exposed to things like policy um, and how to develop it. And I was really excited about that. That's the first time I heard about doing uh, environmental impact assessments and EIAs. And I actually got to do an internship with an environmental consultant firm in Nova Scotia um, as a part of my, my master's degree. And then when I came home, uh, I worked at Environmental Health for a while. And then I went to the Bass Commission. Uh, and that was like the deep dive that was like getting thrown in the environmental ocean. Um, and so I learned so much uh, when I was at Bass for those seven years. Uh, I learned about, um, you know, environmental international negotiations, biodiversity, climate change, EIAs, EMPs, biosecurity. I mean, it was just endless. Um, and of course, conservation. Uh, and then I left. When I left Bass, I went to the Nature Conservancy. So I got to work from the NGO um, perspective. And again, learned so much 
Uh, and that's when I did a lot of the conservation planning and grant writing. Um, and after that, I worked on my own for a while um, and with SEV, working in SEV as, a, as an environmental consultant. And I did a second master's in urban and regional planning with a specialty in sustainability at University of Florida. Nice. And that so took me, all of that took like 20 years. <laughs> That's, it sounds like enough to fill 20 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what, um, for our viewers, how would you define, you know, environmental planning? So in, an environmental planner looks at development and says, how can we do this um, and not impact the environment or minimize our impact on the environment? Um, and so you're looking you're looking at development, you're looking how you can make development happen in as environmentally friendly a way as possible. So, and you mentioned that you also did some grant writing and just if you can kind of tie it together. So how do grants even help with like this conservation effort and this environmental planning in the Bahamas? Right, so, you know, the Bahamas has a reputation of being a very rich country, but I always tell people that's relative um, because the environmental sector is woefully underfunded um, and needs money. And the beauty of grants is that if you get a grant, you don't have to repay it. It's not a loan. Right. So when you get that money, once you meet the deliverables that you were given the grant for, that's all the donors are asking for. And so a lot of that early work at the Bass Commission was actually funded by grants. Um, and we, yeah, we used grants to buy the equipment we needed, um, but we also did uh, lots of really cool projects um, like the developing a clearinghouse mechanism for biodiversity, the National Environmental Policy, the National Environmental Management and Action Plans, projects on invasive species, all of those were funded through grants. Um, and then when you look on the NGO side, organizations like the Nature Conservancy, the Bahamas National Trust, Brief, Friends of the Environment, all of those groups can use grants to help fund um, conservation. So if they want to set up a new protected area or they want to do specific activities in that protected area, or they want to pursue training for their staff or stakeholders, all of that can be funded through through grants. So basically, um, is it safe to say that the grants kind of laid the foundation for the Best Commission, which is now um, the Department of Environmental Protection and Planning? Yeah, definitely. Because when when I was at Best, which I went there in late two thousand. It, it had only been around for a few years um, and it had a really small staff um, and we use grant funding to help to grow the staff, but also, like I said, to, um, to purchase equipment and do a lot of the outreach and education um, projects that we had. We, we did most of that work through grants because our, our actual budget from the government was really small. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, you know, that um, and I hear that all the time. You know, the Bahamas is such a rich country that even when it comes to grants, a lot of times they'll say, oh, the Caribbean, except the Bahamas yeah. and they'll name a few other. And I'm yeah. like, 
but we need it. Like our, our concert, yeah. like you said, our conservation sector is very underfunded and, and grants is really what helps us get by grants and donations in kind donations too. Um, yeah. And they're, they're just so important, but I know you had thrown out the terms of um, environmental impact assessments and EMPs. Can you say um, what those stand for and what they are? Okay. So an environmental impact assessment or EIA is where you look at a project concept, you go to the site and you say, okay, if you put this project here, these are the impacts that you're going to have on habitat, species, your neighbors, um, people who may live a mile away. So you look at everything that's happening in that project and you, you can analyze what the impacts are going to be on those different things. Mm -hmm. And in the EIA itself, you also explain, okay, these are your impacts. So how can we eliminate or minimize those impacts? So say, for example, um, you want to put uh, small cottages on a beach. Um, and one of your impacts may be that you're impacting the dune because of where you have them placed. So how could you minimize or eliminate that impact? You move the cottages back off of the doing. And so you have to keep the doing intact. So that's an example of what an EIA does. And the people involved in an EIA or writing it would be the various specialties. So you normally have a, a, a marine biologist, a botanist, an ornithologist. Um, sometimes you need uh, somebody who knows hydrogeology or, or geology or some type of chemistry. So it the project, the specialties may vary, but it's usually a group of scientists writing the report. Right. Um, then once the EI is done and the way the system works in the Bahamas is you would submit that document to DEP. Mm -hmm. They would say, okay, this, this makes sense to us. We'll let you go ahead and do the development, but now you have to write an environmental management plan. And I call the EMP the Bible for the construction workers. Hmm. So the EMP outlines everything that the construction and operation staff need to do to make sure that the environment is protected. So it'll have things like a health and safety plan, a hazardous waste management plan, um, training materials for the staff because it's unlikely that they'll know what birds to look out for and things mm -hmm. like that. So all that information will be in the EMP and they're supposed to keep it on site so that they could reference it. Um, and then it's usually the EMP and EIA together that DAP will use to assess compliance. Um, with what they have laid out in the Certificate of Environmental Clearance. Right. And I think what you had pointed out is so important. I think when people think of a conservationist, they think, oh, if you want to work in that sector, you need to study marine biology or terrestrial. But it's so interdisciplinary because I've even heard the term ESIA um, being used, which is including that social component. So a lot of times, like you said, if you're building like these cottages on a beach, you now have to consider the fact that you have neighbors. How is this construction going to affect them? How is this going to affect the community and the neighborhood? So there is always the environmental component, the social component, the chemistry, the geology. It's all these things working together. So I always try to tell people, you'd be surprised how whatever your career is will tie back and fit into conservation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing you said, because um, I... I've never, I've done, I've heard of like obviously general management plans for protected areas, but I think 
what you mentioned is so important because when you put these developments somewhere, sometimes people just kind of like, it's like a set it and forget it kind of thing. Whereas, you know, you need to make sure that over time you're making sure that this environment is being monitored and you're doing it the right way based on what was assessed to begin with. And I know that oftentimes these type of documents, um, cause you've worked in policy development, do these feed into the creating or the um, agitating or changing of policies in the Bahamas? Uh, sometimes it can. Sometimes I can. So, you know, if you if you have a project um, and you, for whatever reason, may have missed a particular issue um, for inbox. So one of the things we're looking at now in projects, which is fairly new, is greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that's not something you would have had to assess before. But, you know, the government wants to make commitments under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and those negotiations to show that we are making an effort to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So for some projects, we've had to look at that. What are the, What is the potential for greenhouse gas emissions from this particular project? Um, and what are the what are the policy standards that we're trying to meet? And if there aren't any, can we develop them? For that particular one, um, we use the national energy policy because they did actually make a recommendation um, with respect to greenhouse gas emissions and renewable energies. So it's it's almost like a loop and it goes around and around because the policy can impact how development happens, but how development happens can also impact policy. So, mm -hmm. and you want that because you want both to constantly be improving. And so you'll find that over time, you, you just get these circles and the circles move out because they're both influencing each other. And that is, um, that is important because I know a lot of times um, when you hear about environmental policies, people also think about um, some of the, you know, the, the, the conventions and other things that we sign on an international basis. Um, when it comes to our particular environmental policy, do you think a lot of those that we sign on to actually influence what we put into legislation? Yeah, a lot of times. Um, so when you when you become a party to um, an international environmental agreement, like the Convention on Biological Diversity, you actually are making a commitment to entrench that international convention into your national law and systems. Now, we actually haven't been that great at that. <laughs> we get it better. Okay. We actually haven't been that great at that. Because um, some countries actually will not become a party to a convention until they pass national legislation on that issue. But the Bahamas yeah. has done it the other way. Um, we become a party and then we figure out how to do the legislation and policy. And either way can work. Um, but that means we've lagged a bit in terms of the legislation and policy we should have. But it's not just those conventions that require policy, because yes, we need legislation and policy on biodiversity, but there are also lots of other environmental issues that may not be covered um, by an international convention. And so you would need policy on those as well. And just so people understand, policy is a written document that points in the direction a country wants to go. 
So when we write policy, we're saying this is the direction we want to move in for this particular issue. And that's important because that should keep everybody on the same page. So even if policy comes out of Department of Agriculture, Ministry of Works should look at that policy when they're making decisions and say, okay, are any of my projects gonna negatively impact the direction we wanna move with this agricultural policy? And that's why policy is important. Everyone should be looking at it and figuring out how can I help to make this policy um, happen? Or at the very least, how can I not hinder the implementation of this policy? And that's, I think um, you made a really important point. And I know through just my short career, um, and I'm sure you've probably seen it in yours, fortunately, even though the Bahamas is, you know, in a way lagging a bit, we sign onto these parties and then I implement it right away. I found that when, um, when, NGOs and even some of the government agencies are writing some of these grants and, and these projects, they are keeping these types of policies in mind or parties that the, the country has signed on to. So, so in a way, it's not in policy, but we're, we're acting as if it is. So at least, you know, we're still kind of on that same progression. Um, and so just to shift gears a bit, I know one of the biggest things that I was excited to talk to you about um, is your career in general. And, and I'm very interested about what aspect is your career through all this environmental and conservation planning has been your favorite and why? Um, I think the grant writing has been really, really enjoyable for me because it's one way that I could contribute as a citizen. Um, you know, it's sometimes it can be difficult to see what your impact is as an individual. But over 25 years, I've successfully written $47 million in grants for the Bahamas. So I oh can say goodness. that's my contribution to my country. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been rewarding for me to be able to help the government and NGOs to do the projects that they want to do. Um, the other part of my work that I really enjoyed, it isn't technical at all, <laughs> is getting to see the Bahamas mm -hmm. and getting to see places that a lot of people may not see. Um, you know, I get to go on remote keys where nobody lives mm -hmm. and see the type of habitats um, and animals that are there. And the Bahamas is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I think we take it for granted because we live here, mm -hmm. but from key to key, from island to island, it's, it's a different adventure. Um, and the people, the people are different. The food is different. It's, when you travel the Bahamas, it's almost like going on a world tour because um, every place is so different and you learn something new everywhere you go. And, and I love that part of my job. Definitely. And I think... Um as a conservation planner in my last organization, that was one of my favorite things. You know, I enjoyed, of course, you know, the impact you get from being a part of these grants and these projects, but it really opened my eyes to just how amazing the Bahamas is and how we have so much more than just these beaches. Like all we do is push the beaches, but I, I every time I visit an island and people are like, oh, you know, well, you know, what on that island? And I start naming all of the things that I saw, what I've experienced, even just like, like you said, the food, I feel like each island has their own unique like dish. It's, it's one of those things that just really gives you a greater appreciation for the work you do. 
Speaking of so we do have a question um, in the audience. And I'm actually curious about this one because I was a little like, wow, when you said it, how was it working at Coral World? What did you do when you was there? I, I have vague memories of this place as a child and I wish that it still, I wish it survived. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Yeah, me too. It was a really cool place um, that unfortunately didn't survive. Um, I can't remember which hurricane it was, but one of the hurricanes destroyed um, a lot of the, the aquariums, but I was a docent. So basically a docent is a guide. So when gas would come, um, I would give talks about the animals that were um, in the aquarium, but I was also responsible for animal care. So prepping their, their food um, and feeding them, cleaning their tanks, uh, cleaning the shark tanks was always... <laughs> That was my cardio because I used to be <laughs> terrified. But um, no, that was a great experience because before that, um, I'm an introvert. So even though I've been doing it for years, I get really nervous talking to people. So that helped me to get out of that because I had to give talks to strangers every day. And so that was a good experience for me because it, it helped me get over my shyness. Um, but yeah, no, that was, I learned a lot on that job too. Yeah, it was a great place. Um, and like I've said, I, I do miss Coral as well. Um, and another question that I wanted to ask, cause I know that in the sector, so I'm sure people listening in the sector are going to kind of understand where I'm going with this, but even for our viewers, a lot of times when you get into conservation in the Bahamas, you know, whether you go private NGO government, or you just do one of the two or one of the three or two of the three, oftentimes you find um, conservation professionals um, branching off into a consultancy or just being an independent consultant. And just from your experience and, and maybe your career specifically, do you feel like this is almost like a natural progression in the sector to just, once you get the experience from organizations, you just yeah. shift and do your own thing? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people do that because let's face it, when you work for government or NGOs, you don't make a lot of money. <laughs> you don't. Yes, it's about passion. Um, but as you get older, you start, so you may have children and those children need to go to college. And so you begin to think about, okay, how can I increase my income? Um, and do I have the skill sets to be a consultant? Because being a consultant isn't easy um, by any means. Um, it's a lot of ebb and flow. So sometimes you have work, sometimes you don't. So some people may never get into it because it can be risky. Uh, but if you wanna set your own schedule, work on the projects that you like to work on because uh, you you can tell clients no i'm not interested you have the ability to do that as a consultant mm -hmm. uh, and if you want to have time for your family as well as enough income to send your kids to college then going into consultancy is usually the route that some people take now some people will um go into academia uh, and if you progress in that, that that can be um that can be uh, rewarding as well as, as financially lucrative. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it, it also depends on the organizations you work for. You know, some of the some people get to work for the larger NGOs, they call the bingos, and they, they pay really well. So it, it depends on the person. 
I think to be a consultant, you have to be a bit of a risk taker, especially starting out, because mm-hmm. uh, it is it is scary, um, and you have to be a good planner because again, you have to be able to survive those ebbs and flows, um, mm-hmm. so that you know when you have downtime, there's still money to to pay the bills. You know, and I'm so happy an audience member actually asked the question I was going to ask next, because you said you've been able to bring in 47 million through grant writing to contribute to the Bahamas. And of course, we're so thankful because conservation has benefited a lot from having you. So what are some of the most important parts of successful grant writing? So with grant writing, you have to do your homework in terms of you have to know what the donor is looking for. And you have to be clear about that Um, because if you write a grant that doesn't align with what the donor wants, you're going to get rejected. So that's the first thing. Make sure that what you want to do and what the donor wants to give money to align. And then you have to make the case um, and you have to make the case well. Uh, And one of the things I tell people is you have to put your absolute best foot forward People have gotten rejected because they had spelling errors or grammatical errors or something was wrong with the formatting. So not only does your project have to align, your writing has to be really good. And I have to thank all of my English teachers from high school. (laughs) (laughs) And they helped me um, to be a really good writer uh, because that's so important. And another important aspect of grant writing that a lot of groups struggle with is the finances. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to know how to develop a budget and you also have to figure out how to cost things um, and pull that into your grant. So you mentioned in-kind donations. So even with in-kind donations, when people are volunteering their time, you have to know how to put a dollar value to that because that has to be costed and put into the grants. So it's grant writing is basically an amalgamation of English and math and accounting. And if you could do those three things well, um, you could be a good grant writer. So I know I've heard um, and just hearing people talk about, oh, how to write grants um, and even this book that I'm reading, um, they say it's better, I guess, these days. I don't know if in the past it was different to to almost kind of write your grant as if it's a business proposal. Like, how is this going to benefit you and how are you not going to have to give me any more money almost, you know? Would you well, agree with that? Yeah, it's there are certain basic things that you have to put in every grant. So you always have to have a project description. You always have to have a budget um, and a work plan. And almost every single grant asks you to describe who is this project going to benefit. And it can't be just you. It has to be other people (laughs) outside of your organization. Yeah. Um, But the templates can vary widely um, Mm -hmm. in terms of what people ask for. And so that's the other important thing. Before you start writing the grant for a specific donor, make sure you understand each section of the template that you need to fill out because you can't leave anything blank. What some organizations will do is 
they have like grant summary proposals. So they'll they'll document every project that they want to do for that year. So they have a, a summary for that. And then once they find the donor that aligns with a particular project, then they'll use that summary to help them to fill out the, the specific donor template. Um, but, but templates vary. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend anybody write a full grant proposal without looking at a template because you may actually be working on sections that you don't need to, or you may not be working on a section that you need. And so just a simple two, three page project summary is good to start with a budget. And then once you target a particular donor, then you, you follow the template that they give you. So I know you mentioned that some organizations will do that project summary first and then look, wait to look for a donor. Um, I've also heard that there, there, another tactic would be find a grant, like find a donor and just try to just create something that'll be, you know, that'll fit into that so that you can start getting some money coming in But for very early, um, organizations in their career is in their lifeline, I guess, is that a technique that you would recommend or is it go with the project summaries and then find a good you have to You have to be careful taking that approach that you're not fishing for stuff that you, you're not interested in or can't do. Mm -hmm. I never encourage people to go after a grant just to have money if that grant doesn't align well with what they want to achieve. So let's say um, I'm an environmental NGO and I hear about a grant for ocean um, OTEC doing research on um, ocean uh, energy, ocean technology, energy conversion, where you take in water from deep and it's a heat exchange that generates energy. I'm interested in, in um, teaching farmers how to be more environmentally friendly. Should I go after that OTEC grant? Do I have the skill set for that? Yes, $100,000, but can I actually do that project? And so you have to be very careful. I think you have to have at least some basic idea of what you want to achieve in any given year and then look for grants that match with what you want to do. Because if you go after a grant that you either don't have the skill set for or don't have a support system to help you implement, you're going to fail. And failing to deliver on a grant is really bad because not only will you not be able to get a grant from that particular donor again, they talk to other donors mm -hmm. and you may not get a grant from anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so know what your objectives are first. That's what I encourage people to do. And then go after the grants that align with that. Don't, don't chase grants that you're not really focused about issues that you're not really focused on because it is it, it'll be a headache and it's just not worth it even if you're getting money coming in definitely so what advice do you think you would give to young bahamians who are interested in a similar career path you know they got the good english and they want to really help to bring gen it's basically generating more income for the conservation sector um what advice would you give them as far as pursuing a career in environmental planning um, 
It's so broad in terms of the sciences that you can study uh, that I, I wouldn't really recommend any particular science. Once you're studying a natural science that allows you to get some experience in the field on um, collecting data, you know, and the methodologies that you use to collect and analyze data, that that's a win. Um, but after that, it's, it's volunteering if you have to with organizations so you get some field experience because not always are you able to find the job that fits you perfectly. And so don't be afraid to volunteer um, or, or work in an area where you may not get everything you need, but you get some experience. Um, and then it's just taking advantage of, of learning opportunities. I mean, nowadays there are so many free courses or information that's on the internet that if you wanna learn about writing grants, you can find a course for that. Mm -hmm. If you wanna learn about how to prepare an EIA, you can find a course for that. And so, you know, a lot of what I did I made sure that I did was take advantage of as many training opportunities as possible. The Bahamas is small and it's very seldom that you can find work in an area that that's the only thing you do for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, most, most Bahamians have multiple skill sets that they use at different times. Mm -hmm. And so trying to get as many skills as you can or learn as many skills as you can so that if one door closes you could go through another one um and so with my training on the job as well as through courses i learned how to do eias i learned how to do grant writing and so i used those two skills um to move forward uh in my career for some people it may be um you know, bird identification and geographic information systems. So they know how to identify birds and they know how to generate maps using GIS. So I always encourage people to have at least two skill sets. And that way, if one doesn't work out, you could, you could go to the other one um, and bounce back and forth over those. And then, I mean, you could be working in a field for 10 years and you come across a subject area that you never heard of um, that that you would be interested in learning more about. You know, I, I think we get caught up in this, you know, I have to do this by the time I'm 25. I have to do this by the time I'm 30. Uh, no, your path can be as straight or as winding as you want it to be. Um, and don't be afraid to try new things. Uh, I'm a risk taker, um, not everybody is, but I believe in jumping in and facing your your challenges and your fears. And so I, I don't think I'd ever be a person who would be in the same job for, for 20 years. And I'm not knocking people who do that, but I think the way the world functions now, you have to be able to adapt and you have to not be afraid to do that um, and learn new skills whenever you can. Mm -hmm. 
So, and something you had said earlier when you mentioned try to have at least two skill sets that you're really good at, um, it, it made me think of a question. Um, and if you can't answer, I, I think you'd be able to, though. In your opinion, do you feel like when pursuing um, a career in conservation of the environment, or maybe just any sort of career, uh, is it better to to go in the route of being a generalist where you know a little about a lot and maybe there's that one thing that you're very good at or just specialist and you just focus on your one thing you try to be the best at that um either path can work depending on the person for me i needed to be a generalist slash <laughs> so the generalist is the bigger part of the pie and then the specialist is um the smaller part because i did do marine sciences and fisheries mm -hmm. um so that's my specialization but i know a lot about different environmental sciences uh, i know a lot about environmental legislation and policy um and that helps when you're doing like big projects because then you can pull from all those different skill sets uh, and even if you don't know, you know the people who know uh, that yeah, kind of way. But it's always good to know a little bit about everything environmental related. So even if you don't study it in school, you know, read about read about journal articles, read read the national plans for the Bahamas related to the environment. Um, read some of the historical publications about what the country used to be like um so i you know sometimes i'll just go online and look for journal articles about the bahamas and read them it's, it's so much that a single individual doesn't know and so this constant learning i i encourage people to do that definitely um, and to your point, I think uh, that network is so important. Just even if you aren't great at something, just by kind of tapping into that. And I'm sure even like you mentioned with the environmental impact assessments, you have a marine biologist, you have a botanist, you have someone in geology and you, you have these people. So you can follow along in the conversation, but they're the yeah. ones that are going to tackle that part. So, so conservation is also very interdisciplinary, like I said earlier, and it's always a group effort. We're all in this together. You know, we're really yeah. just trying to push forward. Um, but can you tell us what are some of the things that you are currently working on and how can how can people start doing things now to benefit conservation in the Bahamas? So I'm one of the biggest projects I'm working on is actually for the government on um, the third national communication and the biennial update report on uh, climate change. And basically, I'm I'm partnered with our University College London. Uh, and we're working on a few of the chapters. One is um, research and systematic observations. And a big part of that, that contract is uh, training. So we're doing five modules to train Bahamians um, about research and systematic observations for climate change and the different models and tools that are available globally and some that we might um, want to to apply here. Um, in terms of advancing conservation, um, anything you could do to support uh, local NGOs like the Bahamas National Trust, whether that be by becoming a member, uh, brief friends, you know, all of those groups have membership fees and they use those fees to help them do work. You could volunteer 
uh, to help with activities. If you're able, you can make a cash donation uh, if you have that type of income. Um, just And also just being aware, you know, um, we have a lot of national parks and marine reserves all across the country. Uh, and if you, you you make it your business to know where those areas are and where the boundaries are, if you see something, say something. I know they say that about crime, yeah. but you also say that about conservation. If you see someone doing something in a protected area that shouldn't be happening, or if you see something, you know, in nature going wrong, and you think, hey, is this something that's going to impact these species? then you can reach out to those organizations. Most of them are woefully understaffed and they don't have bodies to be permanently stationed in each protected areas. Um, and these areas are held in trust for the Bahamian people. So there are areas. So we need to take some ownership of that and be stewards for those areas as well. So anything you could do to help manage those areas um even if that's just knowing where they are and making sure like your neighbors don't go drive the truck with their garbage and dump it there you know and and speak speaking up for the environment the environment can't talk for itself so we have to have people who advocate um on the on their behalf and we can't just say oh bnt is gonna do it or brief is gonna do it or lashanti is gonna do it we should each make it our responsibility if it's only for the areas that are close to where we live. That's powerful. Um, I know uh, in, in the project you just mentioned, are there those opportunities and those trainings? Is that something that people can watch any of your pages for? Like, is there going to be a train that's coming out soon for anyone to sign up for? Or that be just a focus group of people? Well, for right now, it's just focus, but the, the intent is that those courses will be available for free on Moodle. Um, and by the end of the project, anybody could go on and take the courses um, and participate. Uh, and so, yeah, initially it's, it's a small, it's a small group of people. Uh, most of them either in the field in government or in NGOs but it's gonna be made publicly available uh, so that people can can take advantage of it. That's exciting. Um, so just as we wrap up the episode, just a final thought for viewers, is there like a, a life lesson that you learned along your career path that you'd wanna share? Wow, I learned so many, I'm <laughs> old, you know. <laughs> um, I guess the, the biggest lesson I learned is actually from my mom. Um, she taught me from I was a little kid, you know, that knowledge is power. And she would always say, you know, the knowledge you have in your head, nobody could take that away from you. Um, and I've actually propelled that into a career. I use my brain to yeah. do my work. And so anything, anything that feeds your mind is a good thing. And you can use your mind to change your life. And so knowledge is power. I love that. You can change your mind to change. You can teach your, say it again. You can teach your mind to change Feed your life. your mind Feed. and change, change your life. I love that. I love that. Um, and last one. Is there someone in the sector, um, whether local or international, that inspires you and why? 
So there is not just one person. Um, there are lots of people, especially young people, people like you, Kuranda, uh, uh, Bradley, um, it's so Marjan, it's so many young people doing such great and exciting things that I look at you and I'm like, okay, can't give up yet. Because, <laughs> you know, working in the environment and conservation, sometimes you feel defeated mm -hmm. because you push and you push and you want people to do what's right for the environment. And sometimes you get disappointed. But when you look around you and you see people, you know, enthusiastic about issues and doing things in their sphere to try to, ch to make a change, that's inspiring. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to give a shout out to David Dean. He's a new birder that I met. Oh. Um, and he is just so excited about birds. <laughs> but he makes me want to learn about birds. <laughs> And so just all the young people who are in the field, who are vocal and active, you inspire me. Thank you. I do. I do love a passionate person. And, and I've met, like you said, there are so many people right now in the Bahamas, young and old or young and seasoned rather that that are very inspirational. And, and I, have a lot of, I have a lot of optimism and hope for the future of conservation in the Bahamas. Um, but this has been such a great episode. I'm so, so grateful that I was able to get the Stacey Moultrie <laughs> on Siren Sundays, a conservation legend, a Bahamian conservation legend. Um, and I've been so, so happy to have you. Uh, do you have any final words for our viewers? Um, no, just thank you. You know, everybody just, you know, keep working. We, we can get it. We can get it right. We can get it right at some point. So we just have to, we just have to keep going. Forward, upward, onward together. Yep. There yep. That's it. Awesome. So, thank you everyone for watching. Hope to see you guys soon into the next episode. Have a great Sunday. Bye, everybody.